think what good history does is make us aware of the complexity of human affairs, both in the past and in the present. There's no simple explanation for why our world is the way it is today. There's no simple explanation for what's going on in the United States or what's going on in Russia. There are numbers of explanations, and all we try and do is get at the best possible explanation. In 2007, this week's guest on The Big Interview published a book about the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, convened to construct a new European order following the Great War and to prevent such a conflict ever occurring again. The conference itself was arguably not a success. The book, to the surprise of all concerned, was. Peacemakers was an immense hit, which catapulted its author into that realm of historian whose expertise in the past is regularly prevailed upon to explain the present. Margaret Macmillan is now Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Toronto and of International History at Oxford University. Her latest book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Margaret Macmillan on The Big Interview. Well, I mean, the start seems like a place to start, I guess. And I'm just wondering if, if you have any recollection of the beginnings of your own interest in history to the point where you thought this could be something I could make a living at. Well, I didn't think much of making a living because in my day, women didn't think like that for the most part. But I did get interested in history early on, I think partly because my parents both told very good stories. They were great storytellers and we loved stories about when they were young. And so we sort of got a sense that things had happened before we came into existence. And our grandparents also were quite good at telling stories. And so I suppose from a very young age, I just was curious, but what was it like then? How did we get to where we are now? Was there a particular thread you remember pulling on that led you to your specialisms? A lot of it was accident, but I think growing up in Canada, but having a mother who came from the UK, I was aware that, you know, there was a Canada, but there was also a world outside it. And so I think I was always interested in sort of what was going on in the wider world, which is perhaps what helped to lead me to be an international historian. And I know it's a question about your own family background you, you've shied away from a bit, but I'm wondering if the fact of being descended from an actual historical figure, your great-grandfather, David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, does that make the study of history seem at least more accessible and less remote, like you can understand that these are real people with all their strengths and frailties having to make extraordinary decisions? That's an interesting way that you put it. I think perhaps you're right. And also the fact that my grandmother and my great aunt, who I was very close to, had met a lot of these people. You know, they didn't always tell me much. I mean, my grandmother met Gandhi. And I said, well, what was he like? And she said, oh, he had a very funny handshake, which didn't really get very far. So, you know, these were people who had lived and, and been alive. And so possibly, I never wanted to be identified as Lord George's great granddaughter because it's too far away. And I didn't want to be seen as someone who was only doing this out of some sort of family obligation. But I suppose you're right. It, 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 I did have a direct contact in a curious way with, with some of the events of the past. And yet you also have that distance, as, as you've already suggested, that comes with being Canadian. At least that's a distance from things that aren't Canada. And, and I'm wondering if 
over the journey you think that has informed how you've looked at historical events, particularly in Europe? Because it occurs to me often as a reporter trying to cover Europe or the Middle East or wherever else it is as an Australian that I do have a very different view of the world that comes a lot from the geography of where I come from, which in many respects is not all that different from Canada. Both are geographically large countries with relatively small populations. Both have always been historically fairly placid and orderly. Do you think that's given you a different way of looking at Europe from how European historians might? I think it does because we are slightly detached. I mean, you put it very well. We're detached geographically. And although we are shaped very much by Europe, our societies were shaped very much by ideas and institutions coming from Europe, we are different. And I think that gives us a certain detachment. I think it also means, you know, given the, the, the some of the horrors of European history, we don't need to feel defensive about it. And we don't need to feel that we're somehow excusing it. I think it's the same thing with the United States. You know, I think American historians are in this sort of position of being either critical of their own country or defending their own country. I mean, I think there's a real pressure on them to take a stand. And if you're a Canadian looking at the world from outside, you don't have to do that. I think I'd like to think that perhaps that gives us the ability to make judgments about the rest of the world from an outside perspective, which I think can be helpful. But is it hard to, or have you found it, and again, this is flagrantly me projecting my own neuroses onto the conversation, found it hard to entirely understand, especially some of those nationalist manias which have driven a lot of the European history you've written about. I keep running up against this. I, I remember trying to report from the Balkans in particular during the 90s, and you would get into some conversation about some deeply felt nationalist grievance, and I think it was the Australian me that just kept thinking, God alive, who cares? Yeah, no, and, and you want us to get on with it. You know, it <laughs> happened. Well, in the case of, of Serbs, I mean, the Battle of Kosovo happened in 1389. I mean, you know, lots happened since then. And, and I feel a bit the same thing with Irish history. Yes, we know that King William was pretty awful. We know that Cromwell was pretty awful. But, you know, that was, you know, several centuries before. And there is that. But I think what we have to do always as historians, and we do it with our own peoples and our own times, is do the best we can to understand. I mean, we'll never totally get inside the heads of people in the past, but we do our best. I mean, we read diaries, we read letters, we try and reconstitute the ways in which people thought. And so I think we can achieve a, a type of understanding of the past through hard work and, and, and never assuming too much. We can never assume that these people are very different from us or very much like us. What we have to do is try and understand what makes them tick. Is it a frustration to you, though, as you know, a historian who does this for a living, that so much of historical narrative, especially when deployed in politics, is framed as just extremely simple and straightforward? This, I know, is one of the themes you got into in your book, Dangerous Games, The Uses and Abuses of History. But is it easier for people to abuse that history the less people actually know it? Oh, I think so. I think we all want simple explanations, don't we? I mean, I think that's why conspiracy theories tend to take hold. We want a simple explanation for why things are as they are, why things might be going wrong. And simple explanations are enormously appealing, but they're often wrong. You see that with the way people use history, you know, or they use history to promote grievances, as President Putin does with Russia. We've always been badly treated by the West. They've never understood us. Therefore, we have the right to do what we want. And I think it is very dangerous. I mean, I think what good history does is make us aware of the complexity of human affairs, both in the past and in the present. There's no simple explanation for why our world is the way it is today. There's no simple explanation 
or what's going on in the United States or what's going on in Russia. There are numbers of explanations, and all we try and do is get at the best possible explanation. But how much patience does it need to be a historian performing the public role that you certainly have in recent decades, whereby it must feel like, or at least it seems to me, that your job consists of popping up repeatedly going, actually, I think you'll find it's all a lot more complicated than this. I know we're the real bores, aren't we? I mean, we're like the people at a dinner party where someone's telling an anecdote and they say, oh, the most terrible thing happened on the tube today when I got on it, you know, so-and-so. And I would pop up and say, no, you kind of got on that tube because it doesn't run there. You know, I mean, no, I think we can't be really irritating, but I think we have to do it. I think we have an obligation to engage in the public debate because otherwise it will be done by people who don't know much history. Political leaders, religious leaders, business leaders will use history to make all sorts of arguments. I mean, history is used, as you know, so much for justification. We have to take Ukraine because it's always been ours. We're thoroughly justified in doing it, say the Russians. And so I think we have to be able to engage and challenge. And indeed, with Ukraine, a number of historians have been absolutely terrific, I think, in in challenging the explanations and the rationale that have been put forward by by different parties. An area in which you have specialised in particular is the First World War, about which there is an extremely simplistic narrative. Uh, Well, there's a couple of extremely simplistic narratives. There's one about how and why it started, and there's another about the futility or otherwise of fighting it. And how difficult is it to run up against that? I think in the United Kingdom in particular, the understanding of the First World War is fueled to an extraordinarily large extent, both by the poems of some of the writers of the period, and I think to an actually underrated extent by the fourth series of the sitcom Blackadder. There is this idea that the, the whole thing was a completely uh, pointless, avoidable, futile tragedy. Is this one less simple than that, do you think? Oh, the First World War is much more complicated, but yes. And often I think the views of the war get tied in with national myths and national narratives and what's going on nationally. I mean, in the Brexit campaign, I was very struck with the referendum campaign, which led to Brexit. I was very struck by how particularly those who wanted to leave the European Union made use of the Second World War. We fought alone. We didn't have anyone else fighting us. We were alone in 1940. We can do it again. Well, you know, as an Australian... And as a Canadian, that infuriated me. I mean, you know, they, how many Australian divisions were fighting for the British? How many Canadians were fighting? How many pilots from Australia and Canada? So I think often how we look at the past is very much tied in with what's going on in the present. But yes, I mean, I think the First World War, what we have to remember about it is that for a long time, really up, I think, until the 1930s, a lot of people, probably the majority of people in Britain, regarded it as a just war, a war that they had to fight, a war that they were glad they'd won a war that was for something important. And the doubts began to creep in. I think, again, partly because of British domestic politics, partly because nobody wanted another war. And so the doubts began to creep in. And and the view that we now have of the war as being universally despised, disliked, totally useless, is one that has become very powerful. But those views change over time. And it's the same thing with how the First World War started. I mean, you said there are a couple of explanations of how it started. There are so many, and they keep on coming. The latest is that it's all Russia's fault, or it's Russia and France in collusion, or it's Serbia's fault. I mean, and all of these have an ex- a grain of truth in them. But I once got very fed up. I'd, I'd given, I thought, a rather careful lecture on how it's complicated to try and understand the origins of the First World War. And we can't really say it was any one fault, any one country's fault, or any one person's fault. At the end of the lecture, someone put his hand up and said, can you tell me who started the First World War? <laughs> and I just spent an hour saying I can't. 
And so I said, I sort of lost it slightly. And I said, actually, it was Canada. <laughs> and there was sudden silence. He said, Canada. And I said, yes. And so I think I've started yet another train of explanation of the First World War. Uh, th that will be a whole field of scholarship in decades yeah. hence. There'll be a Margaret Macmillan chair somewhere whose role is entirely to explain Canada's culpability for starting the Great War. But whether or not Canada is to blame for it, and I think the jury is probably still out on that, were you drawn to the First World War because, and again, this is another common narrative, that this is where the 20th century begins, really, that everything that we have lived through since somehow has a route you can trace back to 1914. It is a watershed, you know, and there are occasionally turning points or watersheds in history, and I think it is one. I mean, there were things happening before the Second World War which were going to affect what was going to happen in Europe anyway. There were ideas out there. I mean, Freud was there, Marx was there, Einstein was beginning to work on relativity. So things were happening, social changes were happening. But the First World War speeded up a lot of those changes it sent Russia down the path to revolution and, and to Bolshevism and with the consequences we're still seeing today. And so the First World War exacerbated some of what was already there in European society and in the world, but it also transformed it into something really catastrophic, I think. And so, yes, I think any historian who does the 20th century looks back and sees the First World War as this extraordinary event that we are still trying to get our heads around. And for that reason, there have obviously been any number of books written about the First World War and its aftermath. Your book, Peacemakers, about the very immediate aftermath of World War I, not only won the Samuel Johnson Prize, but was actually a genuine hit, a bestseller, a, a hugely popular book. W were you surprised when it became clear to you that, oh my God, this is actually rather running away? Yes, I was completely surprised, partly because I'd been working on it on and off for about 20 years, and I'd had real trouble finding a publisher. The publisher said, you know, nobody's really interested. And one said to me, and a bunch of dead white men sitting around a table talking about peace treaties. You know, it seemed a long way away. And I think what happened, the timing often matters, and I published my book. It came out in the decade just after the end of the Cold War, when suddenly things that had seemed dead and gone, like nationalist sentiments in Yugoslavia suddenly came to the surface again and Yugoslavia was falling to pieces. Well, a lot of that goes right back to the, the settlements made at the end of the First World War of Czechoslovakia, which was a creation of that period at the end of the First World War. The settlements in the Middle East, creation of modern Iraq. Again, you go back to the end of the First World War. And so suddenly I think people were saying, how did we get here? And why are all these nationalist sentiments bubbling up? Why are we getting all these crises? And so I think, and I've actually had emails from people saying, I read your book to try and understand what's happening today. So I think it was timing. I was very lucky to find a publisher. But then you're right, it sort of ran away with me. I was sort of stunned. I mean, have you enjoyed the public role ever since then? I mean, it, it is, as you say, a remarkable thing to occur for quite a serious work of history to become a genuine popular hit. To what extent did it transform the life you were already leading? Oh, it transformed it, I think, considerably. I mean, look, I was pretty much unknown. I'd published one book before. I'd, I'd edited a couple of things. I wasn't, you know, my name was not known anywhere very much except in sort of among professional historians. And suddenly I found people asking me what I'd like to publish or asking me for my opinion. You know, this was not something I was used to. And it also, I think, it helped me, well, it certainly helped me get a job at, at the University of Toronto running a college there. And then I was asked to apply for a job in Oxford. So I think my book probably helped because it sort of established my credentials, I hope, as a serious historian.
I mean, it may be already taking on another life of its own for the wretched reason of Russia's attack on Ukraine, because there has been, as you'll be aware, a lot of talk about what kind of settlement could follow this conflict as and when it ends one hopes with the Ukrainian victory. There has been a few people talking about the precedent established by the Treaty of Versailles in which, you know, Germany was punished, humiliated, bankrupted. And again, this is another one of your very simple, straightforward narratives, which is at large out there, that that led directly to the implosion of the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Nazis and World War II. Do you think there are any analogies or lessons from that period that might be useful in trying to figure out how to treat Russia out the other side of this conflict? Well, I, you know, it, it is tricky because sometimes complete victory in war and complete defeat of the loser can lead to peace. You know, as, as someone said, an American general said at the end of the Second World War, and someone said, we don't want a Punic peace like the ones the Romans imposed on Carthage. And they said, you don't hear much about Carthage these days. So, you know, how you make peace at the end of the war, I think, is very complicated. One French expert said at the time of the Treaty of Versailles that, that Germany had to sign at the end of the First World War, that it's neither strong enough nor weak enough. And I think he was on to something. I mean, if you have a treaty which cannot be enforced or you don't choose to enforce, then you're going to lead to trouble. And if you have a Germany which increasingly large numbers of people don't think they've actually lost the war and therefore don't think the treaty is fair, then you're going to get into trouble. But, you know, I keep saying to people, look at how Germany was treated at the end of the Second World War. It was treated far worse than it was treated at the end of the First World War. It was divided. It was occupied. It was humiliated. Huge amounts of reparations were taken out of Germany, particularly by Russia. Do we hear anything in Germany today about how unfair that was? Um, do we hear anything about how Germany is going to get revenge, except for the sort of lunatic right fringe? I don't think we hear that. And so how you make peace at the end of the war is not something simple. And I'm not saying that you know, we should be really rough on Russia. I think it would be very important to try and do what was not done at the end of the First World War, and that is bring Russia back into the community of nations. But how you do that, I mean, if Russia were to be defeated, it is going to be a chaotic situation in Russia. I mean, I think there may well be the same sorts of troubles that you got in Russia in 1917 during the First World War. That's going to be a very difficult challenge. And of course, the world being what it is, people's attention will move away. They'll move to other things. I think we face a huge problem. I mean, if we get a frozen situation like we've got in Korea, that will also lead to huge problems because there will be no peace at all. So how we end this war is, is something I think we really all need to be thinking about. We're not thinking about it enough, in my view. I mean, this particular conflict does also throw up another one of those questions that I'm sure people ask historians annoying questions about all the time, which is this idea of, you know, is it individuals or events who really drive human history? This is the or a variation of the so-called great man theory. If you look at what Vladimir Putin has unleashed over the last 18 months with your historian's hat on, does it strike you that this is one man's whim that Europe is being subjected to? Or at some level, is Putin himself being directed by broader metaphysical forces that he doesn't really control himself? Well, I'm going to be sort of very unsatisfactory in my answer. I'm going to say it's probably both. <laughs> you know, we are products of our own societies. I mean, I'm product of Canada in a particular period. You're product of Australia in a particular period. And so we have views and attitudes which come with our life experience and with the backgrounds we come out of. But it doesn't mean that we don't also make decisions. 
which can be very important. I mean, if you are in a position of great power, then you have the capacity to make big decisions which will affect millions. And so I think it really matters who occupies particular offices with what sort of powers at what times. I mean, I think if someone other than Stalin had come to power in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, the fate of many people in the Soviet Union would have been very different. And I think he was determined on collectivization at huge human cost, but he was the person who pushed it through. And you think of what would have happened if Hitler had been killed in the trenches in the First World War, which came close, or if Churchill had been killed when he was knocked down by a car on Fifth Avenue, New York in the, in the interwar years, what would have happened? And so I think we have to look at this balance and we may never get it right between the so-called you know, big forces in history, the ideas, the demographics, the sociology, the economics, the resources, geography, all those things matter. But at a certain point, it actually matters who's sitting there and saying, yes, we're going to do this or no, we're not. And I don't think the war in Ukraine would have happened without Putin saying, yes, we're going to do it. And I think he drew on this long sort of standing Russian narrative that Ukraine was the birthplace of the Russian people, which he's now, of course, busily destroying. And that Ukraine was legitimately part of Russia. It had no independent meaning at all. It, it was completely illegitimate to want to be independent. Yes, that was something very much there in Russia. But he took it and he ran with it and he's made the war. And he, so far, is, is refusing to stop it. He has the power to stop it, but he's not doing it. Because you've written as well about other instances in which, you know, huge seismic events occurred as a result of how two people in one room happened to get on or not get on, thinking in particular of Richard Nixon and Mao when, when Nixon visits the People's Republic of China and normalises relationships with the United States. And again, when you read this stuff as a historian, do you ever find yourself because I know I do just reading about this stuff as an enthusiastic amateur, just vaguely terrified by how much of human history can come down to that. Are these two more or less randomly selected individuals going to be able to find a way to relate to each other or not? Yeah, I think a lot of it is random. And I think what we tend to overlook as well is that we are emotional beings. We can make all the rational decisions or we think we're making rational decisions, but we have biases and prejudice and we don't like the look of certain people. We take against certain people. We like other people. You know, that matters. And I think you have to be careful with alternative history, but I think we have to ask. I mean, if Trump were in the White House, if Donald Trump were in the White House when the war in Ukraine started, what would have happened? Would the United States have given as much support to the Ukrainians as it has? He has said, Trump has said, if I'm reelected, I'll sort the war out in two minutes. You know, which is the sort of thing he says. And biases come into it, emotions come into it, shifts, physical fatigue comes into it. I look at some of the statesmen in the world and they're getting pretty old. I should talk, I know. But, <laughs> and I think of, you know, how old some of the world's leaders are and just the sheer physical strain on them, jumping on and off airplanes and having all these decisions suddenly. You know, those things matter. There's another line, I think, which links the Great War to the present day, and again, through your works, that the the First World War was supposed to be, of course, the war to end all wars. Famously, it did not. Your most recent book was a broader reflection on, on war and what it means to humankind and why we keep fighting them. Do you think at this point we have to accustom ourselves to the idea that probably a world without war is an unrealistic aspiration? I'm afraid so, and I'd rather not say that. I mean, I think we need to have that aspiration. I mean, I think we need to keep working towards it, but we're not doing very well so far, are we? We thought the 21st century would be more peaceful and in many ways dreadful 20th century. 
and it hasn't been. There have been lots of small wars. We've had wars in Afghanistan. We've had ongoing conflicts in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, wars in Africa and the Great Lakes region, which are killing and displacing and, and maiming thousands and thousands of people. So we are not in a world free of war. We have the capacity to go on making war. We have powers preparing for war. We have war industries. You know, so I think we are living in a world in which we still have to contemplate the possibility of war. And I think Ukraine has brought that home. I mean, it is an extraordinarily bleak thought following on from that. But is there fundamentally something about conflict that a certain cohort of humanity actually enjoys, which is why we keep having them? Well, I think cultural factors matter. And we know that there are cultures in which being a warrior is highly admired and highly valued. There have been and there still are. And I think we see it even in peaceful democratic societies like our own. I mean, you look at the popularity of war games in gaming. You know, they're they're hugely popular. You go into any bookstore and look along the bookshelves that have books covering war, and you will find an awful lot. And movies, of course, television series, podcasts. So I do think there is an admiration of the sorts of qualities that are needed to make war. And whether or not that's right is another matter. But I think we admire those heroic figures. We admire the Achilles and the Hectors of, of history who fight great combats. It's unfortunate. I mean, I think people mistakenly think war is glamorous, and it's not. I mean, it's horrible, it's wasteful, it's cruel, it, it is uncontrollable often. It will often lead to consequences that people didn't really want. But we don't seem to have moved on very much from that. I mean, that word uncontrollable does cue up something else I did want to ask you about learning from history and why the people who make these decisions so often don't. It's a line, I think, usually attributed to James Callaghan, who I think was Home Secretary at the time that the United Kingdom first sent the British Army into Northern Ireland. Uh, And he is reputed to have said something to the effect of, I can have the army in there in 48 hours. This was in 1968. It might take rather longer to get them back out, which turned out to be very accurate. It took another 30 years to get them back out. That thing right there, the idea that conflict can only be controlled up to a certain point, why do global leaders fail to absorb that lesson? Do you think that is just the hubris that comes of finding yourself leading a powerful nation, that you find yourself thinking, I will be the first person in all of human history to maintain control over a conflict? Or is it just that they will not be told? I think it may be a combination of both. I mean, I think when you are a great power in particular, you often get entranced by your own great power and you look at your power and you think, you know, we are so powerful, everyone else is going to recognize it. They're not going to be such fools as to resist us. And that's what happened with the United States in Vietnam. Here's this little pipsqueak country, North Vietnam, you know, with some guerrillas in the South. They will know that they haven't got a chance against the mighty United States. We can outproduce them. We have far more population. We have more of everything. And I think Putin thought exactly the same in Ukraine. I mean, I think he basically counted. He looked at the size of the Russian army. He looked at the number of tanks they had, the number of aircraft they had. And he thought the Ukrainians are going to fold. You know, that whole huge column which came down the first week was not really properly organized militarily. It got stuck on one road. The idea was the Ukrainians would take one look and say, it's no way we can fight on. And so I think that's a danger. And I think a knowledge of history, I mean, it's interesting enough, the military those who are responsible for military planning are often the most cautious because they know what can go wrong. I mean, they've studied it and they know what the costs are. But I think you will get political leaders and, and those egging them on 
will say, oh, it's going to be simple. The, you know, the war will be over by Christmas, which is what some people were saying in, in Europe in 1914. But war is uncontrollable. And once in, I think Callahan was absolutely right, once in, getting out is much more difficult. Well, that does bring us, and I guess finally, for we are running out of time, to another irritating question I'm sure historians get asked a lot, which is the one about whether history really does essentially repeat itself, whether we are doomed to keep plodding around this hamster wheel, getting ourselves into the same sorts of trouble over and over again, at which point, I guess, to bring us into the present day, we have to toy with the unhappy prospect that, you know, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is perhaps analogous to the first and second Balkan wars of the early 1910s, i.e. a precursor to something even worse. Oh, I hope you're wrong. But um, there is that danger. And I don't think history repeats itself because the circumstances are always different and the individuals are always different and the societies are always different and the combinations among different societies are always different. But there are warning signs. I mean, I think what history can do is say, look, if you do this, it is likely the following is going to happen. And I think that's where it can be very helpful. And I think one of the dangerous things that's happened with Putin's invasion of Ukraine is he has broken really what was a taboo since 1945, that you don't invade other countries and take over their land by force. And we've had a few little bits of, it's been broken before. I mean, the Chinese invaded Tibet, India invaded two little Portuguese enclaves. You know, there've been sort of Israel invaded and has annexed the Golan Heights, for example, but it's not been on this sort of scale. And I think the really, one of the really dangerous things about this is Putin has not only broken the taboo, he set a precedent. And there are lots of leaders around the world who have, and their own peoples, who have very good grounds for claiming other people's territories. And I think that is what's really frightening. And I think we've also got, you know, increasing tension between a number of great powers, between India and China, between China, of course, and the, and the United States. I mean, I'm hoping that you're absolutely wrong, that the war that's happening in Ukraine today is not like the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913 at a precursor to the First World War. I'm hoping that perhaps around the world leaders will look and say, you know, perhaps this is not what we want to do. We'll see. Margaret Macmillan, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.